how far is it from Gower Street to Euston Square? The secretary of the Metropolitan Railway measured the distance in the autumn of 1909, reckoning that to the corner of Euston Square, it was about 200 yards, and to the centre, about 350 yards. As a result of which, his company felt justified in reducing the distance to zero by renaming Gower Street Euston Square. Now, Gower Street has at least two claims to fame in the history of railways. In this lecture theatre, we're only yards from the site of London's original steam-operated circle line, Richard Trevithick's Catch Me Who Can of 1808. But I want to focus our attention a little farther north to the corner of Gower Street and Euston Road to our local station, which I want rather rashly to claim as the world's oldest underground station. Of the seven original stations on the first section of the Metropolitan Railway, opened to the Toffs on the 9th of January and to most of us here on the 10th of, ja uh, 10th of January, uh, 1863, four of those stations, Bishop's Road, Paddington, Edgware Road, King's Cross and Farringdon Street, were evidently not underground. Uh, at best, in deep cuttings with overall glass roofs to let in light but allow ventilation. Of the remaining three, Portland Road, uh, now Gower Street, uh, now Great Portland Street, was at least partially open to the elements and it became more so during the course of the 1880s. So that leaves Baker Street and Gower Street. Baker Street still looks like an underground station from the 1860s, thanks to the restoration that it underwent in the early 1980s. Euston Square, on the other hand, has been knocked around so many times over the last hundred years that little remains of the original Gower Street station. But look closely and you can still pick out the recessed arches that accommodated light shafts surfacing in the front gardens of houses along Euston Road. Exactly the same arrangement as at Baker Street. But my claim for Euston Square in advance of Baker Street rests on a description of several newspapers of a trial run in August 1862 when they noted that Baker Street Station was by no means as far advanced as a similar station in Gower Street, which was indeed so far advanced that a workman's dinner could be held in the station the following week. Uh, now, that really would be a 150th celebration if we could uh, repeat that event. The original Metropolitan was built by the cut-and-cover method, for the most part underneath the new road, Marylebone Road to the west, Euston Road to the east, which was the cheapest option wherever it was possible, 
although hugely disruptive, while road traffic was displaced for the initial construction and then the arching over of a trench for the railway. Now, initially, ventilation was not anticipated to be much of a problem. John Fowler, the railway's engineer, proposed locomotives that would be smokeless and steamless. Sadly, technological progress did not keep pace with his aspirations. And the best that could be contrived were condensing locomotives. That is, conventional steam locomotives adapted to condense their own steam, redirecting it uh, through... Um, can I do this? Not easily. Uh, through the tubes that fed back into uh, the side tanks of the locomotive where there was cold water, which would then cool it down again, at least in theory. However, the presence of the steam quickly raised the temperature of the remaining cold water. As long as the journey underground was only a few miles, the condensing locomotives could cope quite well. But as the length of the line extended, first to Moorgate in the east, and then down to South Kensington, and then courtesy of the district railway through to Mansion House in the early 1870s. Uh, so it became increasingly difficult to operate a steamless railway. Another immediate problem was the shortage of sufficient condensing locomotives. This was apparent on the opening weekend, when ordinary non-condensing locos had to be drafted in to cope with demand. And unsurprisingly, the atmosphere in the really underground section through Gower Street quickly turned uncomfortable. Two railwaymen were admitted to UCH, one had to be detained overnight. By the following Wednesday, the Morning Post had published its first letter complaining about the state of the underground. <laughs> Sir, the presence of choke damp in the Metropolitan Railway Tunnel must stop the undertaking unless a remedy be at once found for its cure. And the author proposed attaching fans to each train, sweeping out the tunnel every journey. And, as you can see, he admitted, this may give the passengers colds, but it becomes a matter of choice, colds or suffocation. <laughs> <coughs> we also need to remember that the line accommodated more than just that old gate to Mansion House Loop, or from 1884, uh, the full inner circle experience. There were also... Great Western trains, and not just on this diagram coming through from Hammersmith and City, but coming through from Slough and Windsor as well. Uh, there were Great Northern trains, which joined the Metropolitan at King's Cross. There were Midland Railway trains, which ducked under St Pancras, also to join at King's Cross. And there were London, Chatham and Dover trains, which came up from Blackfriars and Ludgate Hill to join at Farringdon. 
And if we take the district part of the line, there were also London and northwestern trains which wound their way round from Willesden Junction and joined in Earl's Court to run through to Mansion House. Then there were numerous goods trains working through to depots and warehouses at Smithfield and at Moorgate. Now, most of these goods trains, uh, and some of the passenger trains as well, used the so-called widened lines, the extra pair of tracks between King's Cross and Farringdon, by which Thameslink now winds its way under and round the Metropolitan. But the Great Western was also entitled to run seven goods trains a day through Gower Street en route for the city. So running the Metropolitan and the District was a very complicated operation. It involved different types of locomotive, differently adapted to working underground, running on different kinds of coke and coal, some of it far from smokeless, and pulling different kinds of carriages, some wider than others. And I don't mean the gauge there, but simply that the gap between the platform and the carriage footboard varied in width making it necessary to mind the gap, even at stations that weren't built on a sharp curve. By 1897, there were 542 trains each weekday on this part of the circle. And this intensity of service had consequences not only for smoke and steam pollution, but also for safety. Running trains at sometimes three-minute intervals with 19th-century signalling through tunnels where drivers couldn't always see the signals and signalmen claimed they couldn't always see the trains, <laughs> it's a wonder that there were no really serious accidents. But running trains at three-minute intervals also led to an obsession with timekeeping and especially with the time that trains waited in stations. There was a constant temptation for drivers and guards to start their trains before all the doors were closed and all the passengers aboard. As early as February 1863, one correspondent to the Times claimed that he'd been left behind at Portland Road and he timed the next train at each station and found that the actual stoppage at Portland Road was only 20 seconds, at Gower Street, 15, and at King's Cross, 25. Yet among more impetuous passengers than he clearly was, there was also the temptation, uh, as there still is, to rush down the stairs onto the platform and attempt to board a train that was already uh, leaving the station. But it was easier to try in those days because you simply had a door that opened from the outside. So the consequence of all this was a multitude of minor accidents, occasionally involving trains when one ran into the back of another, which seems to have been a fairly frequent occurrence, especially at King's Cross, uh, but more often simply involving passengers who mostly sprained ankles or bruised shoulders, but occasionally lost their footing and slipped to a grisly death between carriage and platform. Or who, 
hanging onto the outside of a carriage trying to open the door, failed to notice the end of the platform and the beginning of the tunnel with even more horrible consequences. <clears throat> In August 1871, a minor collision between Metropolitan and District trains at South Kensington was followed the same evening by the sudden failure of the same Metropolitan train which had continued its journey after the collision until between Portland Road and Gower Street, the couplings between the first and second carriages broke. The engine and front carriage stopped in the station while the rest of the train gradually rolled down the gradient from Portland Road, accelerating into the back of the front part. That was a fairly minor biff. But there are other cases on other parts of the line, confirming that minor accidents and breakdowns didn't necessarily mean that a train would be withdrawn from service. It was heroic of the driver and the fireman if they were able to keep a damaged train running all the way round the line. If we return to the question of smoke, there were several cases where a passenger's death was at least partly attributable to the unwholesome atmosphere. Though a chemical analysis in the late 1860s concluded that the atmosphere of the railway was no worse than that in theatres and law courts. So mind what you're breathing in now. <coughs> Gower Street was almost certainly the setting for one of the most well-known metropolitan stories. A mining engineer, no less, found the atmosphere so poisonous that he almost suffocated and was obliged to be assisted out of the train. He, was, he requested to be taken to a chemist where he asked for some restorative. Without a moment's hesitation, the chemist said, oh, I see, Metropolitan Railway, and at once poured out a wine glass full of what I conclude he designates Metropolitan Mixture. <laughs> I asked him whether he often had such cases, to which he rejo rejoined, why, bless you, sir, we have often 20 cases a day. Now, there were, of course, counterclaims much as with, say, cigarette smoking, that actually the underground atmosphere was good for your health. The railway claimed that fewer of its staff were absent from duty on account of illness, certainly of those who worked in the tunnels compared to those who worked in the open air. John Bell, the company's general manager in the 1890s, averred that before working for the railway, he had a serious attack of diphtheria and was a martyr to quinsy. I had to look that up, it's tonsillitis. But for the last 10 years, he'd had no recurrence. I entirely put that down to this sulfurous acid gas. It's there in such small quantities that it acts as a disinfectant, really. <laughs> and Bell claimed to have transferred one employee to Gower Street Station for the good of his health. <laughs> he remained there six years, and I do not think he had a day's illness the whole of that time, 
whereas previously he had been constantly away with bronchitis. The company's claims for the healthiness of its environment produced a good deal of ribald fun in uh, the comic press. Judy, the conservative comic, reported the prospective sale of desirable building plots in the tunnel between Gower Street and Portland Road stations. Few passengers can have failed to be struck by the natural beauties of this section of the line. The atmosphere is something quite exceptional. Confirmed invalids will no longer find it necessary to migrate to Switzerland. <laughs> and on the related issue of light, Fun magazine advised its readers that the railway's carriages are lit with gas instead of dim and smelly oil lamps, and the result is that one scarcely notices when one is going through the tunnels, the interior of one of which we give a view. <laughs> Our readers will recognise the exact locality. So what was to be done? There were occasional ideas for installing fans and an attempt to use the tunnel abandoned by the pneumatic dispatch company which crossed the line near Tottenham Court Road. But the obvious solution was to make the underground less underground, to open up additional ventilation shafts. The problem was that as the line ran directly beneath the road, any simple ventilation shaft would either have to eject steam through a grill in the middle of the road, which would constitute a hazard for pedestrians and especially for horses, or the ventilators would need to extend upwards as chimneys, albeit disguised as ornamental lampposts or obelisks, so as to eject the steam over the heads of the traffic. But this was unacceptable because it would narrow the width of the road and exacerbate congestion above ground. Another possibility was to eject the steam laterally through sloping shafts like those at Gower Street and at Baker Street, from which the Metropolitan had already removed the glass in 1868 so as to improve the airflow that way. But creating additional shafts of this kind was expensive since it, since it involved purchasing land on either side of the railway and also compensating property owners for the reduced rental value of their houses since nobody wanted to live next door to a ventilator which was unpredictably puffing air out uh, at you. Uh, the underground companies had usually bought more land than they needed for the purposes of making the tunnel. But by the time the atmospheric problems became really serious, they'd sold off much of this surplus land. And that accentuated their wickedness in the eyes of many local politicians. They were selling off land at a profit, but then requesting the use of the streets, public land, free of charge, in order to install ventilators. In 1871, the Metropolitan did receive permission to construct several ventilators of this kind in the middle of Euston Road. 
But the extra ventilators were more than outweighed by the increasing number of trains. And matters came to a head in 1896 with the appointment of a Board of Trade Committee to inquire into ventilation on the railway. The members of the committee are interesting. They included uh, the second Earl Russell, seen here sitting down with dog on his lap or something. Um, but anyway, the second Earl Russell, as I suppose representative of the largest landowner, the Bedford Estate. Uh, Sir Charles Scotter, the general manager of the London and South Western Railway, who appears in this cigarette card. Uh, they also included Sir Douglas Galton down the bottom, the cousin of Francis Galton, and a senior Board of Trade official. Major Marindon, senior inspector of railways, but to many people, better known as a former footballer and famous FA Cup final referee. And then, perhaps most seriously, although Marindon was serious, but, but also John Scott Haldane, demonstrator in physiology at Oxford, an eminent authority on health in minds, and, of course, the father of UCL's own JBS Haldane, who was then four years old. Haldane provided the scientific input, and he conducted his own analyses of air purity, taking over UCL's chemical laboratories for the purpose. The committee acknowledged the need for more ventilators in the short term, but with a limited life of only three to five years, in order to ensure that the Metropolitan and District Railways at last got together to agree a system of electrification, the only long-term solution. By this time, the city in South London had opened as the first deep-level electric tube, and the Central London Railway, today's Central Line, was also under construction. I think it was not so much their uh, technological example as their economic impact. Passengers abandoned the Metropolitan and the District in their thousands to ride on the Central London's Tuppany Tube. It was that, really, which forced the two subsurface companies to electrify, but not until 1905 and not until they had squabbled over which system to use, overhead wires or third or fourth rail electrification. Electrification had other consequences. In the short term, the cosmetic modernisation of stations, replacing wooden platforms with fireproof concrete, which was completed at Gower Street in 1906, and replacing gas lights with electric, 1913. But it was also realised that now you could make all the other stations properly underground. You could girder over the tracks and sell off the newly created land for offices, shops, restaurants, hotels. Gower Street, of course, was already underground, but a scheme was devised to replace the elegant entrance pavilions and ticket halls uh, uh, on either side of Euston Road with a single booking office squeezed in under the road but above the tracks. Essentially, the uh, layout that we still have today. 
But war intervened, and it wasn't until 1930 that rebuilding actually started in earnest. And at the same time, the very short platforms at the station, only about 200 feet long, could be extended to over 300 feet. And again, you can see the join today, where the original arched ceiling um, gives way uh, to the plain girded ceiling. The Metropolitan also worried that its new station entrances wouldn't be so visible from a distance. And there was a lengthy uh, debate about erecting an illuminated sign in the middle of the Euston Road, which, as usual, the LCC thought would be a distraction to the passing traffic. But by this time, Gower Street Station had long ceased to exist, with effect from the 1st of November 1909, it had been renamed Euston Square. The reason for the change was simple, to fend off competition from some of the new tube lines. Both branches of what is now the Northern Line had reached Euston in 1907, and faced with this obviously more convenient competition, how were passengers to be persuaded that the Metropolitan was still a good way of connecting with the mainline terminus? Well, one idea for which there have been plans since at least 1890 was to build a pedestrian subway from the eastern end of the station into Euston Square. Another frequent suggestion of shareholders, at least, was to abandon the current station and build a new one that really was underneath Euston Square. But, of course, the least cost solution was simply to change the name. St Pancras Council and some newspaper columnists, and here the Daily Mirror writing in a very sort of undaily mirrorish style of uh, language, um, but uh, they were opposed to the change. But of more interest to us, so was UCL. On the 26th of October, both the provost, Gregory Foster, as commemorated in Foster Court, and apparently independently, Francis Oliver, the professor of botany, both wrote to the Metropolitan to complain. Oliver's was the more passionate missive. He accused the Metropolitan of an act of unjustifiable vandalism and a contempt for history, ignoring the heritage of people like Darwin. He also observed the geographical inaccuracy of the new name. To rechristen the station Euston Square will hardly convince anyone of the propinquity of the two. And he ended with the terrible threat that he would switch his allegiance to the new tube railways, which living in uh, uh, Kensington presumably meant coming by the Piccadilly line to Russell Square. Oliver's threat went unheeded. The secretary was instructed to send a suitable reply, probably with two fingers. Um, 
the provost's letter received rather more polite attention, but had as little effect. He complained that the college had been con not been consulted about the change, and he vaguely referred to the very great inconvenience that the charge would entail. Not exactly persuasive. Um, the general manager of the Metropolitan, R.H. Selby, dismissed his objections. The name Gower Street conveys nothing to the minds of persons other than those who have direct associations with the street. The provost tried again, equally unsuccessfully. The station is used daily by several hundred people connected with this college. In fact, I should think in all probability that the greater part of the traffic from the station is connected in one way or another with the college. Now, I don't have traffic figures for Gower Street Station, but if several hundred people constituted the greater part of the traffic, then Gower Street was clearly not pulling its weight on a railway which carried 275,000 passengers daily in 1909. Uh, so he got a pretty brush-off reply again. Back in January 1885, the tunnel between Gower Street and King's Cross had been the site of one of the first terrorist attacks on the underground. When a bomb, in practice little more than a firework, was thrown from the rear carriage of a train midway between the two stations, exploding as it hit the tunnel wall and shattering some of the windows both in the train from which it was thrown and in one that was passing in the opposite direction. John Bull reported that it was the third-class passengers who suffered most and that the bomb was probably uh, not unlike that used in the assassination of the Emperor of Russia. <laughs> but the general assumption was that this explosion, uh, rather like some more serious bombs, that it exploded at Paddington and near Charing Cross about a year before, were attributable to Fenian Irish Republican agitation. More serious harm was mostly befell fictional travellers. Some of you may know Baroness Auxes' story, The Mysterious Death on the Underground Railway, where a woman on her own in a first-class compartment is found to be dead on arrival at Aldgate. It transpires that she has been poisoned by her husband, who, boarding a train at Gower Street, on which she is already a passenger, greets her lovingly, squeezes her hand, thereby injecting a deadly poison which he has previously secreted in the ring that he has given her. The poison only doing its work after he has got off the train again at Farringdon Street. Don't do this at home. Uh, rather less well-known is C. Haddon Chambers' an underground tragedy in which a man is murdered between King's Cross and Gower Street by a killer who makes to leave the train, then slips into another compartment from which he emerges at Edgware Road, where the body is discovered by a shocked female passenger. When the passengers are interrogated, 
the murderer presents a perfectly valid ticket showing that he has boarded the train at Baker Street, thereby proving his innocence. The Victorians seem to have uh, infallible faith in the railway ticketing system. <laughs> the Metropolitan also features in more serious fiction. Those of you who know me will know that I can't give a lecture without mentioning George Gissing. Gissing was a regular user, both literally and literally, of the Metropolitan. <clears throat> Restricting our attention to Gower Street, in New Grub Street, Amy Reardon uses the railway from Westbourne Park to Gower Street in order to walk uh, down to Moody's on New Oxford Street, a circulating train to visit a circulating library. While in Eve's Ransom, Maurice Hilliard stalks Eve Maidley by following her out of her Gower Place lodgings and round the inner circle to the Healtheries, the International Health Exhibition in Kensington, silently sitting opposite her all the way. It's actually notable how many of Gissing's underground journeys involve women travelling alone. The ultimate journey, of course, was to circle the circle in the cab of a steam locomotive, as the journalist illustrator Fred Jane did in 1893. After some initial anxiety, Jane was exhilarated by his ride through the city. And he noted that they came into King's Cross at the rate of some 40 miles an hour. But then the road now began to be uphill, and at the same time the air grew more foul. Uh, by the time we reached Gower Street, I was coughing and spluttering like a boy with his first cigar. It is a little unpleasant when you ain't used to it, said the driver, but you ought to come on a hot summer day to get the real thing. <laughs> the history of Gower Street, now Euston Square, is a history of the underground in miniature, of the challenges, political, managerial, as well as technological, of running steam trains underground, of the underground as a fertile site for all our imaginations, the criminal, the horrific, the erotic. Of course, drawing on the press and the minutes of the company, we inevitably focus on the crises, the accidents, the problems. Most of the time, the railway worked, if not like clockwork, then like a steam railway ought to work. The Illustrated London News, following a trial run in 1862, noted a general feeling of agreeable disappointment. Thank goodness it wasn't half as scary as we thought it might be. And George Dodd, writing in the Fortnightly Review in 1866, concluded, the darkness in the tunnels, the heat of the gas-lighted carriages, the sulphurous odour down in the stations, the fear of unknown and indefinite dangers, all give place to the great fact that the railway renders services which cannot be rendered by any other agency. And that remains as true in 2013 as it was 150 years ago. Thank you.
we have about five minutes for questions, uh, and I'm sure there will be a number of people here who have to get on to the next class thing, so we really have to be disciplined about that. Uh, so I'll ask for a raise of hands of questions. Uh, if I call on you, please wait until one of these lovely ladies brings you a microphone so that you can be heard not only here but online. So uh, you were first, sir, and we'll have one back here. Um, who and why was the whole project financed? Of, of, of the Metropolitan Railway? Yeah. Or, or um, well, that's a very complicated and long drawn out affair because it, it starts, you know, at least 10 years earlier um, as a rather complicated project to build from Bishop's Bridge to Hoburn and possibly to connect with a scheme that Charles Pearson, who's well known in the, in the history of the underground, who was the City of London solicitor, had also put forward for a scheme for extending a line down to Farringdon. That scheme, those schemes pretty well failed for lack of finance. The company was almost wound up. It was then rescued in part by the City of London who um, put forward about £200,000 worth of the financing. It was also financed in part by the Great Western, but there was a very anxious relationship between the Metropolitan and the Great Western, and they constantly fell out. And otherwise, it was financed by simply a quotation on the stock market and hoping to get individual investors. Right up there. Uh, I, I never knew till today that the overground trains like from the Great Western and so forth went through the, the underground. When did that stop happening and, and why? Well, the Great Western continued to run um, goods trains through uh, well into the 20th century. One of the anxieties when they were rebuilding Gower Street and putting the ticket office underground was that possibly they would suffocate the ticket office staff, unless they improved the ventilation, because there were still these occasional goods trains running through the station. Um, in terms of passenger trains, they came to a system where they changed engines, and then most of the trains, other than the Great, the great Western ones, probably don't know enough of the details of that as to know when they simply terminated that service at Paddington. Um, they certainly had a period when they changed engines at Paddington. And, of course, the Hammersmith and City was in a rather peculiar situation because it was partly the Met owned by the Metropolitan and partly uh, by the uh, Great Western. But it's, into the it's well into the 20th century that things like goods trains carry on through Gower Street. One question right there. I'm afraid this will be our final question. I'm sorry. Uh... Um, in relation to the parish metro, um, what's the time relationship of the... Um, London Underground. Oh, the Paris Metro is much later. Uh, the Paris Metro doesn't open until 1900, so it's 37 years behind the Metropolitan Railway, and it's even several years behind the City and South London Railway, so we're, we're far ahead of Paris. <laughs> <laughs> and on that winning note, uh, one more round of applause for <laughs> Professor Dennis. <laughs> <laughs>